Well, hi, everybody. Don Wardlow here on the Baseball Lifer podcast. I'm your Baseball Lifer in residence. Later on, we're going to hear from Dave Collins, an old friend of mine. He used to broadcast in AA at the same time that I did. And at the time when I switched over and went to Alamo Rent-A-Car, he began broadcasting for the Lancaster Barnstormers in the Independent Atlantic League, and he broadcasts with them and does a great deal of everything with them to this day in a team like the Bat Barnstormers. An executive really is the chief cook and bottle washer, and that's Dave Collins, and that also includes broadcasting. So we'll talk to him in a little while. We're brought to you by Cortland Computer Services. You'll hear a little bit about them. We want to welcome our listeners on Snowman Multimedia. Hope you enjoy listening to us on Snowman or anywhere else that you can hear this podcast. Now, before we get into the fun part of interviewing Dave Collins, and it was a fun interview for me to do, I'm going to get a little heavy this this one time. This needs to be said. If you read The Athletic, which is a sports newsletter, there is a piece in there written today by Brittany Garoli. Since I can't share the link to her article, I'm going to spell her name Brittany, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, Garoli, G-H-I-R-O-L-I. And the piece is about baseball players increasingly making it known that they have mental issues such as depression and anxiety. But I will be open about the issues I've had. I've been dogged by depression since my final year of high school. And it's an off and on thing. And it's invisible. You can't see a person who's suffering from depression. If anything, I was dogged by anxiety a lot longer than depression. I went through most of middle school from one class to the next in a state of anxiety, especially once I became a professional baseball broadcaster. If I was to admit that depression was dogging my footsteps, I would not have gotten any kind of help, and I would have been looked down on. I know what my broadcast partner would have said. He would have said something to the effect of, hey, you're a baseball broadcaster. What do you mean you got depression? And I know he would say this because when I met the love of my life a week into my professional baseball career, he said, and I quote, you're a baseball announcer. What do you need with a girl? She was more than a girl. She, as I say, was the love of my life. And when I lost her, I needed considerable help, none of which was forthcoming. Because in the 90s, it really was a stigma in the athletic world, whether you were a player, whether you were an executive, whether you were a broadcaster. If you had mental issues of any kind, it would have looked very bad and the very least you'd expect would be to be called a sissy or a pussy or something like that, and it could get worse. I was wondering if I would lose my job if I let any of my baseball bosses know that I was dealing with depression. One in particular, I think, would have thought nothing about canceling my baseball career. But this is now 2023, and... As this article goes into great detail, this article by Brittany Garoli in The Athletic does name names and quote cases of ballplayers who are coming forward and letting the world know they're dealing with depression and anxiety. This should have happened decades ago. The most catastrophic example I know of, of a guy who didn't get the help he needed was pitcher Donnie Moore with the California Angels. Donnie Moore was their closer in 1986. He gave up a two-run home run in Game 5 
of the American League playoff that year to Dave Henderson. Now, that home run did not directly make the team lose. This is a fact that's lost to history, but that put the Angels down 6-5. to five. They tied the game, and they lost it in extra innings. They then lost game 6 and 7 in Boston, sending the Red Sox into the World Series. And Donnie Moore never got over that home run that he gave up to Dave Henderson. And two years later, in the summer of 1988, it came over the radio that he had taken his own life. Thanks to the changes that are taking place in our world, not all of them are good, but this one in particular is. Ballplayers now have a little more room. They're not looked down on as harshly. They don't lose their jobs. They're allowed time off to get their mental house in order, if you will. Who who could be, you know, under more stress if you come right down to it? You're playing for the Yankees. You're in New York. You've got relentless media and absolutely devastating social media. I can easily imagine players on the Mets and Yankees suffering, particularly my Yankees. I looked at the standings. They're not doing as bad as they look, but with the game they lost last night on Thursday, May 11th, they lost 8-2 to to the Rays. And the Rays are doing a passable impression of the 1984 Tigers. The Rays record is 29 up and 7 down, where the Tigers that year, 84, were 35 and 5. My Yankees are still above 500, but they're dead last. They're 10 games behind. And they look a lot worse than they are because it's being compared with the Tampa Bay Rays, who've gotten off to a dynamite start. They are going like gangbusters. Not that anybody's watching down in Tampa. They're still getting the bad attendance they have always gotten. Tampa Bay and Oakland are dueling it out for the worst attendance in baseball again. And one other thing before we go to our word from our sponsor. If you're listening today, this is Friday, May the 12th, to get in your favorite chair and tune in the Miami Marlins game tonight. The Marlins are calling up pitcher Yuri Perez. He is their number one prospect, and they're bringing him up straight from double A to play against the Cincinnati Reds in tonight's game. So that's one. If you have the major league package, as I do, I have the audio package. You can sit down and listen to the Miami Marlins here. Glenn Geffner, their broadcaster, who's a guy that I'm targeting on this broadcast. I'd love to see Glenn as a guest on the baseball lifer. Uh, he'll be broadcasting that game as Yuri Perez takes on the Cincinnati Reds. When we come back, it'll be Dave Collins, my old pal, and Mr. Everything with the Lancaster Barnstormers of the Atlantic League. To hear him, keep it right where you got it. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an a rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at CortlandComputerServices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 
732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer, Don Wardlow here, your Baseball Lifer in residence. And my guest is Mr. Everything with the Lancaster Barnstormers of the Atlantic League. And his name is Dave Collins. And Dave, you're an old friend. It's great to be in contact with you again. Don, always good uh, catching up with you. We get to we get to chat about once a year, and it, it's always great catching up and, and chatting some of the, the old Eastern League days. That's where I ran into you in AA Bowie, Maryland, but I don't think that's where your baseball career began. I have a recording of a game with you and Andy Young in either 1983 or 1985. I forget which. It was 85 yep, in Durham. So was that where your baseball career began in Durham? Well, actually, yeah. my hometown is Rochester, New York, and, and my baseball career uh, began in 1976. Yes, I'm dating myself, but I, I, I will say I was a high school student at the time, uh, and I uh, filled in doing the stats for the radio crew for a couple of days before everything was uh, – uh, computerized and then i spent the rest of the summer in a dirt filled parking lot uh unpaved uh getting filthy but enjoying every minute of it uh and uh getting 20 minute breaks where i could uh, could run into the stadium and uh watch uh one of the great rochester teams of all time uh the 1976 ball club and uh that's kind of where where I cut my teeth. I became a full time broadcaster in Madison, Wisconsin, in nineteen eighty two. In nineteen eighty five, I went to uh, the Prince William Pirates, and the reason you have uh, an audio tape of a game uh, that Andy Young and I did together is because we, when we were on the uh, on the road on weekends. Uh, we did not necessarily do every game. Our radio station had previous commitments to, I think it was some kind of local stock car racing. And uh, as a result, there were a few Saturday night games we did not do on the on the road. We didn't do home games in general. And and I'm in in Durham with the ball club, having you know having done the Friday night game, doing the Sunday game. Saturday night, I'm just hanging out in the ballpark. So. It, from time to time, I would jump in and uh, work with the home radio broadcaster. If you don't mind me going back a bit to that 1976 Rochester team, was that at Silver Stadium? That that, that was at Sil Silver Stadium, which uh, people who grew up there, uh, long-time long Rochesterians, have an incredible reverence for that facility, even though it's uh, been better than 25 years now since it uh has ceased to exist and and not been the home of the the Red Wings. There they moved to a a stadium uh, near downtown in the, in the shadow of the Kodak Office Building. Uh, and realistically, they needed uh, an, a newer stadium. But uh, those of us who just watched baseball at Silver Stadium, uh, the place was an absolute. It was an absolute classic. And, and you you bring it up, it just brings back such fond memories for me. And surprisingly, I don't know if it was in 76, but somewhere along the way, Rochester was on a 50,000 watt blowtorch WHAM radio 1180. So I actually heard some Red Wings games when I hadn't heard any minor league games in my life. Yeah, there there, there were time there were times that uh, that they were on WHAM. I to be perfectly honest with you, I did so I did some Red Wings games uh, in 1980. Uh, that's that's where I first started doing play by play, and that that story is long and convoluted. But uh, I uh, I did about twenty seven. I think it was twenty seven games that summer, and uh, I can I but I could not tell you what station we were on. All I could tell you is that my elderly grandma at that point thought it was the greatest thing in the world that she could listen to me on the radio. 
And by the time you got to 1985, you're talking Prince William, and you're talking a memorable name, Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds, I I had the chance to uh, to work with Barry for half a year, and you know people get this impression of Barry if you've read about him in the the national media and so on and so forth. But uh, my recollections of working with with Barry were all were all quite positive. I mean, he was who he was. He you know he was baseball royalty in a lot of ways. And he, he was very well aware of that. Uh, and I think he was very well aware of the positives and the negatives of that. I mean, when, when Bobby Bonds is your father and Willie Mays is your godfather, I think you're, you're destined for stardom and destined to be a San Francisco giant. Uh, but, but I, I think there, there were positives and, and negatives, but, uh, you know, I, I, I have fond memories of Barry. I really do. And, uh, he to this day remains as the most talented person I've ever seen on a baseball field. I, I've seen, I, I mean, I've seen others. I've seen Vladimir Guerrero. I've seen Manny Ramirez, but I, I've seen Cal Ripken. But I, there's there was just something about about Bonds that just stood out. Stood as a cut above the rest. He seriously could do everything on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here with Dave Collins, now of the Lancaster Barnstormers. So from from Prince William to where I met you in 1993, uh, where did the road lead you between those two stops? Uh, well, in uh, uh, 1988, I, I went to Lynchburg. I was a rent broadcaster for a year. Uh, it was basically what it was. Is they had somebody in place in Lynchburg, who was going to take over uh, if, if the main radio guy left after the 88 season, uh, the main radio guy left just before the 88 season. This is somebody you know You know also, Sean Holiday. Yes, I do. Uh, from uh, Norwich. Norwich, yes. Sean, Sean was, uh, was hired as the intern for a guy by the name of Frank Atkinson. And just before the, uh, the season started, Frank got hired in... Omaha. And we did not have a radio deal in uh, Prince William at that time. And basically, the Lynchburg at that point, Red Sox knew that they got in touch with me, they got in touch with the Prince William franchise, it was like, you know, hey, can Dave come, can Dave come down here? They they didn't think Sean was ready. He pro- realistically, he probably was, but, they, you know, they brought me down uh, to do the games that summer and, and largely train Sean. And then at the end of the year, they, they invited me to stay, but I felt like I was, you know, that had that third wheel kind of feeling and like I was in the way. So I really, uh, I bowed out after that. I thought that I was going to land somewhere else. I had some feelers from other clubs at higher levels and every, I mean, everything fell apart. And I ended up doing uh, doing anything and everything for a couple of years. Uh, I finished uh, as a finalist for a couple of AAA teams, a couple of AA teams. Couldn't actually land anything, but I had always been told uh, by the the people that ran uh, what was ultimately known as Maryland Baseball that they would like to have me work for them. And it finally happened in the fall of '90 after. A couple of years out of the game, I ended up going to work for them in Hagerstown and then uh, eventually moved with them to Bowie. And that led to a very interesting situation, and that got me into the league. I was in the Eastern League with New Britain, and we were told that Bowie didn't have a stadium and wasn't going to have a stadium for a while. And so they were going to play at Old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Were you part of the negotiations that made that happen? I, I I won't say that I was out looking for uh, the, the stadium deal, but I was with them. Uh, what happened was is uh, the ownership had already made it very, very clear that they were going to move out of Hagerstown. And in fact, they had uh, they didn't want to leave Hagerstown high and dry. Uh, 
but they knew that it at that point wasn't quite viable. They didn't feel as a double A market. And they thought that there were markets out there uh, that that were with how sort of rapidly the industry was growing at that point and that there, there seemed to be some bigger cities available uh, to and, and bigger markets available to uh, put the double A team. So they found a replacement ball club to come into Hagerstown so it automatically sort of wiped them out of um, of going back there uh, in case things fell apart. And they they had a deal uh, in well they 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 all I, I think initially they wanted Annapolis, but they couldn't ever consummate a deal in Annapolis. So they. Uh, Prince George's County is a very, very large, heavily populated suburban county of D.C. And they got a, a deal there that was somewhat complicated. And they're all set to go to Bowie, uh, which obviously ultimately happened. And at the, I, I can't even tell you 30, 30 years now after the fact, but at the last minute, one piece of whether it was the land deal or the financing of the stadium got held up and had to be and had to be reworked so we were we were sitting there and the only thing we could really do we had an office in prince george's county uh but the only thing we could do was conduct the name the team contest we couldn't legitimately sell advertising or season tickets because we didn't know what the future would hold and you know, the fall tur turned into the winter and uh, the Orioles were, were starting to get a little antsy about it, which is understandable. You know, you want to have have some answers. What What's going to happen with your double A team? So it was actually the Orioles and our and our ownership went to the city of Baltimore and the Orioles kind of spearheaded it. Uh, and, you know, Memorial Stadium was standing there vacant they hadn't taken the wrecking ball to it yet and we just uh you know they they worked the deal so that we could uh play in memorial stadium for that one year and it was it was such a memorable season uh because the city of baltimore treated us so well uh we weren't treated by the, the government of Baltimore, we were not treated by certainly the media of Baltimore as being something, you know, second rate. Oh my gosh, this is a nuisance. We have to put up with this. Now, that, I mean, the, to me, the city of Baltimore and especially the media in Baltimore welcomed us with open arms and, and really helped to make it an enjoyable season. What was crazy about it, Memorial Stadium had been sitting there for 16 months. And if you know... <laughs> any kind of structure can fall into disrepair and, and it had, and we got in there the first of February had to get ready for uh, April, an April, whatever opener. Yeah. And right smack dab in the middle of that was something known as the super storm of 93. Yes. I remember like that 16 inches of snow and a half an inch of ice on, yeah. on the Baltimore area. And that was nuts. And right, right, right in the middle of March, and we had to work around that <laughs> and, and get that, get that. We had to sell all our advertising, sell it, sell the tickets, get the stadium up and running, move into the offices, and so on and so forth, all in the span of about nine weeks. And yeah, we, uh, we and, got and somehow, some and somehow put together a a respectable product on the field. Uh, the Orioles gave the Orioles. Had, had a pretty good ball club in place for us. And we did benefit because we got Mike Messina on rehab for a couple of starts. And those were our two biggest crowds of the year. But uh, it was uh, it, it was just, like I said, with the Orioles and, and the Baltimore media and the city of Baltimore, uh, nobody made us feel like we were somehow intruders. Or, or everybody really welcomed us with open arms and uh, and helped to make that such a great season. My partner and I got to broadcast from the booth at Memorial Stadium, and we're walking around up there before our first game. And Jim said to me, "This is where 
Mel Allen and Ernie Harwell and all the great American League broadcasters broadcast. And I had the, a good case of the butterflies during that first game at Memorial Stadium. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I made it my uh, thinking process there just brought it to I took over a broadcast booth from John Miller. And that's all you have to say. Believe and that's, me, that that was that was that was enough to contemplate. What a legend! I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about Chuck Thompson, who who was another person in Baltimore who made us feel incredibly welcome. Uh, Chuck Thompson was a magnificent fellow, and uh, you know he was good, he was good friends with our community relations guy slash public address announcer uh, Bud Freeman, um, who had worked for the Orioles. But that you know. Uh, Again, the whole everything just worked out to to make that a fun summer, whereas it could have been, in theory, a nightmare. And you know, the Orioles were such a joy for me to work with. They allowed me to interview both John Miller and Chuck Thompson. Those two might be a good uh, baseball lifer episode one day. Those two archival interviews. Now, ninety four, you probably remember this. We came to town, but we had the stadium all right, but there was no roof on the press box, and it rains a lot in Bowie. We were absolutely terrified, and and you had even worse than that later on. You almost had a tornado land on you. Well, we, we, had, we had two significant uh, weather episodes that, that 1994 season, and we were, we were – we spent the first about two months of that year uh, is traveling minstrels. Uh, we we played home games in uh, Annapolis at the Naval Academy, uh, in Wilmington, in uh, Frederick, and, and at the University of Maryland Shipley Field. And while there there are some some great stories about that. It was kind of fun pulling that off for a couple months and we pulled it off without a hitch. Visiting teams always got where they needed to go. Umpires always got where they needed to go. We didn't, we didn't miss a beat uh, as far as the logistics of, of putting a baseball season together uh, was concerned, but it was, it's not the way you want to live. And they finally they started construction on Prince George's Stadium in October or November of '93, and that and just after they poured the concrete, got the foundation laid, had everything set up and ready to go, we had one of those you know once in a lifetime rainstorms. It was like seven inches of rain in a in a nut one night or something it washed out everything and they had to restart and then uh maybe not everything but a lot of it and then we had a very very bad winter and the ground the ground froze which doesn't always happen in the dc area it can happen but it doesn't always happen uh but the ground froze and uh they it just tremendously slowed down construction on the stadium. Well, it became obvious by certainly March 1, and I think earlier that we weren't going to be able to start the season there. We you know, found the alternate locations, but there, there was definitely sort of a, a time limit on how far you wanted to, to stretch that with, with those alternate spots. You're playing it you're trying to play double A baseball at the University of Maryland, where it was 350 to center field, and had about 500 seats. It, it that that just doesn't fly over the long haul. So uh, we got into I think it was June 14th. Uh, we opened at Prince George's Stadium, and it was there was a seating bowl and an outfield fence, and that was. Uh, really about all there was. I mean, we had portable concession stands, portable restrooms, uh, trailers for clubhouses, a trailer for ticket office. Uh, 
you know, the team would go on the road, we'd, we'd come back home and something else had been done to build the stadium. But when we opened it, there was, there was virtually nothing there. The, the, you know, the seating bowl was there, the bleachers were in, uh, the press box was open. There was, there was a roof over it, but it was basically metal plates that weren't fused together. As, as I remember, it, we had we got the first three games in. It was we were playing Binghamton, and we got the first three games in all right. But then the uh, the fourth game in the middle of the game, we had this just awful thunderstorm, one of the worst thunderstorms I think I've ever seen in my life, at least outside of Florida, uh, break loose, and just we had lightning coming down everywhere. It was pouring rain. We're standing an inch or two deep in water in the pre- in the press box which was not enclosed uh, with extension cords dangling all over the place and lightning coming down everywhere. And we just looked at each other like, we're all going to die. Like, we're not going to survive this. But we did. And then uh, it was about six weeks after that, we were playing a night game. And I can't remember uh, the opposition. But, uh, and, and here again, we had, I don't know, dugouts and a seating bowl and seats and a couple of things started to to be built but again we were largely working out of trailers and we get that we get word that there is a tornado uh on the ground about i don't know 25 30 miles south of us maybe a little bit more than that because it was down it was down in charles county uh where the southern maryland blue crabs are now and this tornado just kept coming and finally uh we had to make the decision to evacuate the ballpark, send everybody home while the storm was still 20, 25 minutes away, tell them what the situation was. But by the time we got we got everybody out and things were being secured, the, the staff, you know, the, both the, uh, the front office staff, the game day staff, were left in the stadium going, this storm is like on us. We've got nowhere to go. And we, you know, we have no place to take shelter. And we just stood there at the what was to be the front gate of the stadium, uh, just watching it. And we could you could see the tornado over the over the grove of trees between ourselves and the main road. It hit uh, it hit the other side of the main road. It hit the there was a hotel over there, uh, and it, uh, the tornado did some damage at the hotel. But you you could you could see the swirl in the clouds above the tree line. Uh, it was just. That was that was pretty surreal. Um, so that uh, after that, everything everything got a lot better in Bowie, and you know it hasn't been a historically successful franchise. But you know here we are, thirty years later, they're still operating. So there's something to be said for that. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here with Dave Collins, who. I know as Mr. Everything for the Lancaster Barnstormers. Now, the change my partner and I made to the Independent League happened in 97. We went to St. Paul. Uh, When did you make your move from uh, Bowie to Lancaster where you put down roots? Well, the the move was made for me, basically. Uh, The uh, partnership known as Maryland Baseball uh, more or less dissolved. They they wanted to be heavily involved in the Atlantic League, and they they actually started their first venture into the Atlantic League was in, in Aberdeen, Maryland, before uh, Ripken Baseball went in there, and they they partnered with with the Ripken brothers uh, in, in this venture, but they couldn't swing a deal for the stadium. It was a, a one year situation at Hartford Community College, but that ownership group fell in love with the whole idea of the Atlantic League. They were kind of in on the ground floor uh, of putting the Atlantic League together. I think, if not the first Atlantic League meeting, but certainly one of the early ones was actually held at Prince George's Stadium. Well, the the Eastern League and the Atlantic League have never exactly been uh, the best of friends. And, uh, you know, the... uh, the Eastern League kind of felt that the Atlantic League was encroaching upon territory. Um, and so basically, uh, 
the Maryland baseball ownership w- was forced to make a decision either, you know, stay in affiliated ball and don't get involved in the Atlantic league or be involved in the Atlantic league, but you've got to sell your clubs here. So they decided to, uh, after the 2000 season, uh, they, they sold their, uh, their holdings in the Orioles organization. They, they had Bowie Frederick and Delmarva and new ownership came in and it just, I was not comfortable uh, realistically with the way they wanted things done and they were not comfortable with the way my job was structured. Uh, so initially they, they decided I could stay on as the radio broadcaster, but they didn't want me being uh, the PR director anymore. They, they wanted me to be just seasonal. And I, I agreed to that. Uh, and then midwinter, I get a call uh, from from a good friend of mine, John Danos, who was the general manager at the time of uh, of the Bay Sox, and he took me to lunch. He's like, "Yeah, I hate to tell you this, but the the owners don't really like the way the radio deal's set up either. So, yeah, there's probably not going to be a radio broadcast this summer either." So uh, <laughs> that was that was that, and I ended up embarking on a a separate career as a uh, is a t- high school teacher I, and I have taught both Spanish and math along the way, although math is where my near certification is. Uh, and it's still what I do during the off season that I jump, I jump in and I, uh, I long-term high school math classes, but I, uh, in any event, uh, I was told by the previous owners that they were certainly very interested in having me join them when they got going again. And uh, they um, uh, initially it looked like they were going to have York ready first and I was going to join them in York. Uh, And then the Lancaster situation sprung ahead. And uh, I, I, I was invited up to Lancaster during the Christmas holidays, uh, 2003, 2004. Uh, got together with uh, with Don Danos, who uh, by this time was a part owner of uh, of the company, which became Opening Day Partners. And uh, show he sh- drove me around, showed me the setup in Lancaster and what was going in. And I I just I fell in love with the entire idea. I attended an Atlantic League game in Camden in the summer of '04, and just thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, and I was like, I've just got to be part of this. Uh, and I, I just couldn't wait for uh, for Lancaster to, to get going. They built the stadium. They didn't have a radio deal. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't have streaming back then or anything. It was either you had a radio deal or you're, you know, you weren't doing anything. And uh, I had to, I had to sit and wait. Now there were some things that, there were some companies we found out later uh, after doing some investigating that could stream audio. It was very rudimentary, nothing like it is now. And uh, finally, late March, I get I got a phone call. Uh, you know, hey, it's time to join us if you want. And I was like, oh boy, do I. Uh, and and I, I started with the Barnstormers, uh, I believe it was April the 15th in 2005 and uh been going at it ever since pretty soon it'll be 20 years yeah it's you know it's it's getting there and uh you know it's really funny to contemplate it now when you look back it's been 18 years since we opened and we're the second oldest franchise in the league but what has actually happened is you know through all the changes in ways, the league has actually gotten more stable, uh, which sounds a little funny. But I mean, the Long Island Ducks are are a great franchise. I, I there to me aren't too many teams that will say a, a double A size because that's our ballparks are double A ballparks, um, and the there aren't many teams that have been more successful than the Long Island Ducks have been. Uh, it, it, it is a tremendous franchise. 
they've they've really Frank Bolton and his people have done a magnificent job there. And you know, we we've seen Somerset come, you know, Somerset was an original, and then they had the opportunity to uh, get among the affiliated ranks and took advantage of it. The uh, Sugarland franchise again was tremendous, but through all of that, through all of that reorganization of affiliated minor league baseball, we also picked up some some pretty good markets, uh, being in Lexington, Kentucky, and Charleston, West Virginia, and Staten Island, and Frederick now, and we're we're just looking for, you know, those situations to grow. Uh, partner league baseball you have to be able to show people the pluses of partner league baseball because it's not, they're not as evident uh, as they are you know, where you can go, Ooh, we've got, you know, the Phillies number two prospect on our team. Uh, we do have a significant number of players in, in the Atlantic league who have played major league baseball uh, and every once in a while, we will get a big name. Like this year, the Ducks have signed Daniel Murphy. Oh, the old Met. I remember him well. The, the former Met national second baseman, uh, several-time Major League All-Star. Uh, he's decided he wants to play again. He hasn't played since 2020. Um, so that's the fun part of the Atlantic League. The Atlantic League, you have to kind of pull yourself away from the numbers. We don't talk about what round you were drafted in or where Baseball America ranks you as a prospect in, in your organization or overall or how much money you signed for. Uh, now we we have players. The, the great thing about the Atlantic League is that is that we have players who love to play the game. They have they've all been told they're not good enough. And they're like, no, I'm going to prove to you that I am. And they come to the Atlantic League and they they spill their guts on the field. They spill their guts for each other. Uh, you have you get great team vibes. Winning, winning is extremely important. Yes, these guys want to have their contracts purchased, but winning is extremely important to them. Uh, team chemistry is extremely important to them. And the Atlantic league is about guys who love playing baseball, who have a lot of baseball talent and, and, and their stories. Uh, they, they were once the, you know, the 20 year old big prospect on the way up. And now they're the 29 year old guy married with two kids trying to get back. And that is there, there is a charm uh, about about the Atlantic League, or you know, in reality, the other partner leagues too. Although we certainly like to think of ourselves as as the creme de la creme uh, of the partner leagues, but uh, there is a uh, there there is a certain charm about it. We're coming off we're coming off a league championship uh, with a team that yeah you know, of guys that wow you looked at it on paper. Maybe not all that impressive. You watched them on the field. Oh my, they were they were something, and it was because of the team chemistry. And they, they, the team we had last year to me really demonstrated what baseball should all be about. I mean, they did they did everything it took to win ball games. And yes, yes, there was talent. A lot of it, I think, basically undiscovered talent, or talent that sort of went by the wayside maybe at the pandemic where a lot of major league teams just released a bunch of guys because they didn't want to pay them um and, you know and then the 2021 season was was just a mess trying to get playing time or everything else we've got we've got some guys in Lancaster that that can really play the game they're just sort of like unmined talent and, and you're hoping that uh, you know, that some of these guys can get seen and their contracts purchased. And then other people want, you know, want to come in and play the Atlantic, play in the Atlantic league and have the same opportunity. Last question for Dave Collins of the Lancaster Barnstormers on the Baseball Lifer podcast. I know you go beyond broadcasting in Lancaster. So if you can give me a 
thumbnail sketch of a day in the life of Dave Collins, a home game day. You get there, what time, what's in your inbox? I, what are you like? I, I, to be I, usually, doing? I usually get in uh, at about one o'clock and get the day set up. Now I, I'm sort of, because uh, I don't have family obligations necessarily when I'm in Lancaster because uh, our home's in Virginia. That's where I am right now. So when I, when I'm up there, I'm generally by myself and I am a horrible night owl and I believe in doing everything for the next day before, before I go to bed. So I generally have game notes done, stat packs printed out, rosters updated, unless we have last minute changes, so on and so forth when I get there. But I'll get in, see how the game's going to go, see if there's anything that I need to do. Uh, and then uh, you see if there's anything that's immediately pressing. Uh, maybe finish printing off things that haven't been, like if we're doing the first game of a series, for example, I'll print out the, uh, I'll get the roster for the other team and print it out. Uh, and make sure everything gets down to the the coach's offices downstairs. Um, then uh, you know may, I'll finish the game notes, but I'll also uh, I am the chief writer. We have a very feature article oriented uh, game program, which is now on, online, and I am the chief writer. I write if there are twenty five articles that are done over the course of the year, I write twenty two of them. Uh, so I, I have that. I'm the traveling secretary for the team. So I'm in touch with bus companies and hotels and I handle the player payroll. Uh, I coordinate, uh, any of the local interviews with any of the local sports media, uh, with our baseball personnel. Uh, so any, any, and all of that can, can come up on any given day. Then sometimes you'll have days. Oh, it's the second day of, a nine game homestand i'm not really planning the next road trip uh we didn't have any roster moves and you know those days might socialize a little bit in the afternoon uh but but a lot of that a lot of the time you've got just those other responsibilities to during during the day then you know 4 35 you know we play our home games at 6 30 so four o'clock in the afternoon you're getting lineups you're putting those out uh, you're filling out your scorebook. You're doing the the last minute prep. You're talking to the other broadcaster, uh, so on, so on, and so forth. Uh, if it's the first game, you've been home in a while. You're testing your equipment with our uh, control room guy, uh, and, and then uh, you just get ready. You do the game. You write the post game summary. You, you, well, you print the box scores out. Run those to the coaches. You write the post game summary. You. Uh, uh, and and then you do every everything to get ready for the next day. We've been talking with Dave Collins of the Lancaster Barnstormers. I hope they have a successful 2023, and I sure thank you for taking some time to talk on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don, thank you, uh, thank you. It's always good being. It's always good being in touch, man. Back with a word about next week's show. If you keep it where it is. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8000.
732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here. That sure was a fun, enjoyable interview with Dave Collins. I love to talk to him about our days in double-A ball and what he's been doing with the Lancaster Barnstormers. One thing I didn't know when we did that interview, I have only found out since then, the Lancaster Barnstormers and the entire Atlantic League are no longer on YouTube as they were through the 2022 baseball season. They are now on Flow Sports. Next week on the Baseball Lifer podcast, you'll hear Adam Giordino, one of the broadcasters who does baseball for University of Connecticut. Also, he had an idea during the pandemic, an idea whose time has truly come. And we'll talk about that next week if you join us on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Have a good week. (laughs) 